Well, again, go ahead and please turn your Bibles to John 7, verse 53. It might be a little tricky to find uh, that verse. Most of your Bibles will have that down in the next paragraph right before John 8, 1. It kind of starts that next paragraph there. So you might want to look for John 8 and then just find John 53 right there close by. And uh, as we get started, know that today's message is going to have a little different feel to it than most Sunday sermons. It's going to be different today. Uh, typically, we'd have an introduction with an illustration or a recap, like a flashback to the previous passage and or passages from the sermons in the weeks prior as we work through books of the Bible. That's how we go through the Bible and preach here. We go through books of the Bible, passage by passage, verse by verse, and we're going through the book of John right now. And those messages will start those kind of uh, introductions with some illustrations and then going through the passage, learning what it means in its context with some kind of conclusion for application at the end. But this passage that we've come to today as we work through the Gospel of John is not what we might call typical. In a way, it's quite unique. And if you look at your Bibles, you might notice a set of double brackets around these verses Maybe even a header or a footnote on the page. In my Bible it says, The earliest manuscripts do not include John seven fifty three to eight eleven. I would assume your Bible says something like that too. Uh, meaning, John might not have written this originally. In fact, this passage doesn't show up in any manuscripts of the Gospel of John that we have until the 5th century, the 400s. AD, so 300 plus years after John wrote the gospel. And of course, after reading and hearing something like that, a natural question that we might ask, something like, what? We might ask that kind of a question, huh? And before I answer that thoughtful, efficiently articulated question, though, before we start venturing, venturing into what may feel like or look like dangerous territory, I want you to know why we allow questions like this here at First Baptist Church. We don't run and hide from these things, and we don't shun these kinds of questions. Why? The reason why we allow these kinds of questions is because we believe in truth. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. And so when we see this in the Bible, we don't need to run away from it screaming or closing our ears, closing our eyes, We don't need to skip over it or act like it's not there. We don't need to tell people that good Christians don't ask questions. I hope you don't believe that to be the definition or methodology of faith. That's not faith. I hope you would disagree with that definition entirely. Paul, think about this. Paul encouraged the faith of the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, remember, by reminding them of all the people who were with Jesus, physically present with Jesus, After his resurrection, at one point he said, and on one occasion, there were approximately 500 people present, simultaneously, all there with Jesus, and almost all of them were still alive at the time of Paul's writing of this letter to the Corinthian church. Meaning, Paul was saying, hey Corinthians, if you're doubting the resurrection, if you're wondering if it's really true, go right ahead. And ask these people who saw him with their own eyes, who were with them themselves. Christians, we believe in truth. And truth doesn't hide in the darkness. Truth doesn't run from interrogation. 
Truth lives in the light. And the truth will set you free. The fact that we all have this in our Bibles should encourage you, not discourage you. No one is pulling a wool over your eyes. There are no secrets. And there are answers. There is no fear. So now we, we see this written in our Bibles. And it might raise some questions, but you know, be encouraged by this. The people who gave you the Bible that you have on your lap right now or on your phone, they're telling you this. They must not be worried about it. And so neither should we be worried about it. Okay? It may raise some questions, so let's run right into it. Let's run right into those questions and see what's to see and, and what we can learn. Even when people would seek to use something like this to attempt to debunk our faith, let's run right into it. And as we do, I believe that your faith and your assurance in the accuracy of the scriptures will only be strengthened. It will only be strengthened. So first, what does this header, this, this statement about the manuscripts even mean? And why would somebody dare type that in my Bible, for crying out loud? In order, in order to answer this, we need some terms defined, okay? When they, when they use the word manuscript or manuscripts, uh, the editors who put together your Bible and my Bible are referring to the copies that we have from the original writings of the Scriptures. Remember, the apostles were not using computers or even typewriters, Kids, Google that after the service if you need to. They weren't using those kinds of things to write the scriptures. What were they using? They were writing the scriptures by hand, including the copies. Everything was written by hand. So the author, the person who was uh, having the words dictated to them potentially by the author, if Paul dictated to somebody else who would write for him, they were writing it by hand. They would handwrite the letters or the books of the Bible, and then they would send them off to the churches and send them off. And the churches who received the letters would handwrite copies, and they would share those. And on and on and on that would go. And in those copies, some people would write a commentary, like extra thoughts or explanations or definitions like you might have if you brought a study Bible or a reference Bible with you today. Remember, in ours, though, they're all neatly typed, separated by lines, right? So we can see what's scripture and what's not. So just a reminder, study notes are not inspired. They're not inspired. The scripture is inspired. Okay? But sometimes the commentary when it was handwritten would be written right there in the manuscripts next to or even sometimes within the text of the scripture. Which means you would need to have a bunch of copies to discern what was there originally and then what was not. Which we do, by the way, have a bunch of copies. More on that later. So, all of these handwritten ancient parchments or papyri that have been passed down and shared over time are called manuscripts. And as I told you before, uh, this passage, John seven fifty three to eight eleven hasn't been seen in any manuscripts that are dated prior to the 5th century, 400 to 500 A.D. It just goes in those manuscripts from 752 to 812. And so you know, remember this, chapter and verse numbers were not added until the 1500s at the start of the Reformation. So it's not like people were reading the Gospel of John in 300 A.D. and said, hey, where's verses 1 through 11? 
because those weren't marked, okay? Uh, They would simply read about Jesus' offer of rivers of living water and then read about the different responses to that offer like we talked about last week. And then right on, reading to Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, which is what we're going to be talking about next week, it actually flows quite well, like it was intended to be that way. In addition, no commentaries of the Gospel of John. People were writing commentaries really quickly after the original scriptures were written. No commentaries of the Gospel of John written before the 5th century contain this passage. No writers or teachers in the Eastern Church. Remember, there's the Western, more European Church. There was the Eastern, more Asian Church, Near East, Near East Asia. And eventually leading to the Great Schism. It took until the 10th century, so like 500 years later, for the leaders in the Eastern Church to start writing about this passage. So it took 500 years to get from the West to the East, as far as we can tell from the manuscripts that we have Also, once its inclusion is found, this passage, it seems to be located in different places. Some manuscripts place this passage earlier in John 7. Some place it at the very end of the Gospel of John, kind of like an appendix. This also happened, kind of a deal. Some manuscripts even place it between Luke 21 and Luke 22. Furthermore, people who study and really know the Greek language, okay, leading Greek scholars, and these are not detractors and deniers. These are people who love Jesus just as much as you and I do, if not more. But there are Greek scholars who have found that the writing style of this passage, it differs in its personality. So like its vocabulary, its construction, its style. It varies from the rest of what John wrote in the gospel and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and in Revelation. So then what do you do? What do you do? The reality is sometime along the 5th century, this narrative passed down verbally or written out on some separate manuscript about Jesus, and the woman caught in adultery solidified a spot seemingly in between John 7 and 8, and copies were made of those copies all the way to the early 1500s, where we see the invention of the printing press, and for all intents and purposes, it was universally agreed upon that this was in there and that the number of copies and the languages translated as a result of this event and the Protestant Reformation as these things grew and chapter and verse numbers were created to help people find and refer to passages more easily. And this passage, these verses were attributed numbers and this location, John John 7, 53 to John 8, 11, right? When all of this happens, what do we do? And And then, with all that being said, we continue to find more manuscripts and older manuscripts. And then what are you going to do? So here's, here's the idea. Okay, think about this now. 1500s, the printing press, uh, people translating the Bible into the languages from our thinking of, of history in Europe, prominently when the, where the Protestant Reformation is occurring. They didn't have the Bible in their language. It was just in Latin or Greek, the New Testament, right? And there was a Greek text that they used, and there was a Latin text that they used. And it contained this passage in this location. But the regular person back in that time, there were two major obstacles for them to be able to read the Word of God for themselves. Money, because these were all handwritten copies, and they were very expensive to come to come by. And language. People in England didn't all speak Greek and Latin. 
They couldn't read the Bible for themselves, so they had to trust somebody else to tell them what they were supposed to do, to tell them what it said. And leading up to, think about people like Tyndale and Wycliffe in English translations, people like Luther in Germany, they want the people to be able to read the scripture for themselves. There's a lot of opposition to that, wasn't there? Be thankful for the Bible you have on your lap or on your phone. People died to give you that. Right? But you have all of this stuff going on. And then beyond that time, we continue to find more manuscripts. We can continue to find older manuscripts than what we'd had before, what we had access to before. And so then you got to decide, what are we going to do? Do we take it out? Or do we throw some double brackets in there and say, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811? And of course, that's what the translator, translators and editors have chosen to do. Now, that answers one question, but it brought up another one, didn't it? It probably brings up another question. If that all happened, if that's why my Bible says this about this passage, how can I trust that the Bible that I have isn't all messed up? How can I be sure that the Bible I have, that I've been reading, that the New Testament, the Gospel of John that I have, that I've been reading and basing my life upon, is really the Bible? How can I know that this is really what the original authors originally wrote? Is this really God's Word? And listen, there are amazing, powerful, true answers to those questions. All right, you ready? Here's some proof. We have over 5,600, nearly 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament, many of them dating back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries. We have 9,000 major early translations. There are 36,289 quotations from 2nd and 3rd century commentaries written by leaders in the church that contain all but 11 verses from the entire New Testament. All but 11. So think about that. There were commentaries written, books about the books of the Bible, that contained, if you read a commentary, it'll have the passage in question and then the comments of the commentator. So they have the Bible written right in there that contained all but 11 verses of the entire New Testament and they were all written before the end of the 3rd century. So even if, even if every manuscript we have of the New Testament was burned and gone forever, we could still have preserved nearly the entire New Testament with those documents. And just to give us some perspective here, with some other books written around that time, just two examples. There are 643 copies of manuscripts of Homer's The Iliad. 643 total. There are 10 copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Ten. Some of them dating as far as a thousand years from the time of the original writing. No one questions those documents. And the ten is the more common number. There are other documents we have where we have eight. Some we only have two. Not being debated as to what the original authors wrote. So take 643, take ten, 
compared to 5,600 plus, compared to 9,000, compared to 36,289, all of those being lumped together. Is there any argument as to which book has the greatest support and evidence for its accuracy? No other book even touches, even comes close to the historical viability of our possessing the original writing by the original authors and the Bible. The Bible's where it's at. We've got it. We've got it. We have manuscripts of the New Testament that are within 70 years of their original writing, and that's important because within 70 years, somebody knew John and knew what John wrote and said, "Uh uh-uh, nope, we have it that early. You might say, well, that's great, Pastor. We have so many of these copies. I get that. But what does it matter if they contain these changes? We have all these copies, but you just said that there's something funky going on here in this this book. Okay? Funky's probably not a good word for it, but you know what I mean. Okay? What about these changes? What are we supposed to do about these variations? Or we might call them a variant. And that's usually the word used among scholars, a variant. Are these manuscripts riddled with errors? And in truth, there are people who take that position, who say they have decided not to believe in Christ because of the variance, meaning differences between one manuscript and another. And at first hearing, you might be tempted to not blame them because it is reported, I'm emphasizing that word, it is reported that there are around 200,000 variants or some might call them errors, found in the manuscripts of the New Testament, including, so not excluding, but including the passage we're talking about today. 200,000. That sounds like a lot of errors, doesn't it? It's probably more than we make in a day if we're writing something down. Sounds like a lot. That's more variance than there are words in the New Testament. There's over 184,000 words in the New Testament. So there are some, one guy specifically who's kind of head, heading this off, his name is Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman, you don't have to remember this, there's no quiz. He well, grew up in a Christian family, he went to Moody Bible Institute, he got his master's at Wheaton, and his doctorate at Princeton. And his uh, main book that he put out, uh, seeking to debunk the authenticity of the New Testament, makes the claim, there are more mistakes in the manuscripts of the New Testament than there are words in it. So you shouldn't believe the New Testament. That's the claim. That is the very argument that is used by some to discredit the accuracy of the New Testament. And it does seem like a lot, doesn't it? It might rattle you to hear that statement. It's very persuasively said or written. Until, of course, you understand what a variant is. And you realize that these errors aren't what some would make them out to be. So let me give you some examples. We're going to go up to the screen. Okay? Visual aid at church today. 200,000 errors. Let's get that first line up there. This is the original. Okay, can you see what that says? Welcome to First Baptist Church. Everybody clear on what that says there? Let's get the second line up. What does that say? If you had to read it, what would you say? Welcome to First Baptist Church. Do you see something wrong with it? Welcome is missing an E. First Baptist Church is all one word. Capital B is missing. Capital C is missing. Uh, that's five errors. No E. Two spaces missing. 
and two capital letters. Five errors in that line. How about line three? Welcome to... Oop, this person's got some spelling issues. Welcome to first. And they forgot that T. They were getting so excited about the content, they forgot that T at the end of Baptist. Or they're maybe from... Uh, they maybe speak really quickly and they forget to put the T's on there at First Baptist Church. And they left that T off of there. What's about, how about the next one? Welcome to first... Baptist Church, okay? He's got his phonics figured out, but just put the wrong letter in there. And the next one, welcome to first... Oh, he just oopsed on the P and the T there, didn't he? First bat... Okay, that's what that one says. So, do you know what he's saying? Could you figure that out in your mind? Could you put that piece together? Okay, now, take the original one away. Because we don't have the one that John actually put his own pen to paper, if that was what he was using, pen to paper. Could you look at those four and maybe guess what John was writing? Could you take a stab at it? And listen, I greatly exaggerated this. To think that this is what the manuscripts look like and that the first five copies you find or the first four copies you find look like that would be ridiculous. They're not that bad. <laughs> I made it worse than it actually is to prove a point. Does that make sense? Are you following me with that? Let's talk about numbers now, okay? Just to make this clear. On that second line, on the second copy, or the first copy of the original, there are five mistakes. And let's say that copy of five mistakes was copied 200 times. So somebody wanted to be as close as they could to that, assuming the best of the person who copied it in the first place, and they did it to a T exactly that way. So those five mistakes were copied 200 times. Guess how many variants that would count as? Not five. A thousand. That's a thousand. Since that line was copied as it was found 200 times, it counts as 1,000 variants. And then uh, if we look at that third line, it was copied 250 times. Line four was copied 300 times. Line five, let's say 700 times as they were spread out from church to church to church, if you add up all those typos, is what we'd call them, and then multiply them by the number of copies made, you would get 2,500 variants. Well, that's 2,500. That's, that's more mistakes than there are words in that sentence. Well, now it sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? Now it sounds kind of ridiculous. Now, if you can get 2,500 variants from four lines consisting of five words that I purposefully butchered, how many variants can you get out of over 184,000 words that were copied thousands and thousands of times? So the idea that there are 200,000 errors in the New Testament manuscripts is frankly absurd. It's absurd. Over the 184,000 words in the New Testament, now think about how many letters that would be, because these are letter mistakes. Think of how many letters that would be. There are only 10,000 places where there are variants, and nearly all of them consist of spelling errors and word order, which doesn't even matter in the Greek language. There are only 40 places where there are variants that go beyond spelling and word order, and none of them, none of them, none of them have any effect on our fundamental doctrines. None. 
So the whole more errors in the New Testament than there are words argument is just bogus. It's not even logical. So why would anyone support it? Why would anyone write books about it or try to uh, strong arm and persuade young women to think that they've been lied to their whole life about Jesus? Well, because as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppress it. That's a willful decision, isn't it? They suppress the truth. Uh, Do you know why people refuse to believe the Bible? Because they don't want to believe it. How do some of the most brilliant people in the world come to the most illogical conclusions? Because of willful rejection. A desire in our unrighteousness to suppress the truth. Church, believing means confessing and repenting and changing. Putting off the old man and putting on the new. Being freed from my bondage to sin and becoming a slave to righteousness by the mercy and grace of God. And if I don't want Jesus to be my Lord, if I don't want Jesus to be my master, then I'll think of whatever excuse I can. And if I'm really smart, I'll use any skewed numbers and statistics that no one would want to take the time to look up in order to justify my disobedience and rejection of my Savior. Or, as we're about to see now in this text, I will abuse the law. So there. I told you this sermon was going to be different. That was the introduction. Okay? Now, after having told you the reasons we aren't sure that this passage is supposed to be here, uh, where it has settled in the Gospel of John, here's something we don't know. We don't know that this isn't supposed to be in Scripture. We don't know that. Uh, What has been argued about this passage is who the specific author is and where it belongs. But no one really questions whether this actually happened. By all accounts, this is a true story. This is historical narrative. So that it, it seems that this really did happen in history. Furthermore, everything in this passage agrees with the rest of Scripture. And nothing in this passage disagrees with the rest of Scripture. So, is it worth reading and learning from? Well, of course. So let's do that. Okay, let's do that now. So John seven fifty three. They each went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes, remember the scribes, they were the experts in the Jewish law. And the Pharisees, who were religious and social leaders in Israel, and supposedly experts at keeping the law. They knew the law and they kept it. These scribes and these Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst... And the word here would be like causing her to stand. So they, these scribes and Pharisees brought this woman. Okay, think of it like an arresting, a grabbing and taking of this woman and standing her in the midst of this 
crowd. They're making a public example of her. We'll see later to make a public example of Christ at her expense. Then verse 4. They said to him, Teacher, and by the way, do they see Jesus as a good teacher? Do they really respect him and hope to learn from him today? We'll have to wait and see, I guess. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Remember, caught in the act. That's going to be really important in a minute. If she's caught in the act, there has to be a man with her in the act. Verse 5, now in the law, remember these guys are the experts. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And it says they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. They didn't care about her. They're trying to get him. Notice how they phrase this question. Now, in the law, and then they say, so what do you say? It's like they're challenging his previous teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Jesus taught things like, you have heard that it was said of old, uh, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say... To you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus spoke as one with authority, not as the scribes. And by the way, he amplified the heart of that commitment, didn't change it. He used the same, you have heard, but I say formula six times in that sermon. And it looks like here the scribes and Pharisees are trying to trick him into a violation of the law or to nullify it, to get himself in trouble with Rome or to dismiss it and therefore fail to be a righteous, good teacher. Then they can prove that he isn't the Messiah. You see? This is their goal. Then they can show that they were right and Jesus was wrong. So no repentance, no change, and they stay on top. Sounds like a good day for them. Of course, Jesus also said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's what Jesus said. So now let's see what Jesus is going to do with this to get out of this clever attempt, this trap. This is the second part of uh, verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So first of all, what in the world was he writing on the ground? That's what we always want to ask, right? That's the first question. (laughs) Who doesn't want to know what Jesus was writing on the ground? But what does the text say? Nothing. It doesn't say anything about what he was writing on the ground, right? It doesn't tell us that. So we can't know uh, whatever we might think it is, our, any guess we have is an educated guess at best. But here is one uh, popular guess that I think is actually wrong. I don't think that Jesus was writing out their sins in the ground. I've heard that many times, that idea. Have you ever heard that idea before, that Jesus was exercising some omniscience in that moment and started writing out with his finger, maybe writing out the sins of the scribes and Pharisees so that they would get convicted and leave? Now, I question whether any of them would have been convicted in the first place. 
But there is another problem with that idea that is also very important. If Jesus was writing down the sins of the scribes and Pharisees and then saying to them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, then the application of of this passage would have to be that no one is qualified to provide justice or to provide consequences unless they are perfectly righteous. That would be what we would have to deduce from this passage. Just say that again. If Jesus is writing their sins down on the ground, what this passage would teach us is that only those who are perfectly and entirely righteous could ever provide consequence to others for sin. Problem? Therefore, if that's true, parents are no longer qualified to obey God and discipline their children. Governments are no longer qualified to fulfill their God-given responsibility to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Churches are no longer qualified to obey Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18, which instructs us that if a person says they're a believer but acts like an unbeliever, the church is to act like they are an unbeliever. None of us would be able to do any of those things if that's what this passage is saying, if that's what Jesus is writing on the ground. Basically, if Jesus is writing the sins of the scribes and Pharisees in the dirt that day, then we should close all our jails lay off all law enforcement officers, eliminate all school detentions and suspensions, and all the children said amen. And I think you get the idea, right? Now, regardless of whether Jesus was writing this in the dirt or not, this next thing, what the scribes and Pharisees needed to be reminded of was the law itself. The very law which they were using, attempting to use that day, of which they were the experts, right? In both Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, the law states that the woman and the man who are caught in the act of adultery were to be punished. The woman and the man. Where was the man if she was caught in the act? And the reality is the Jewish people were not even permitted to execute people under the Roman rule anyway. People were not being stoned to get to death. Even if they were caught in adultery in that day and age, the whole idea of this entire thing was a show to put Jesus in an impossible situation. But even if they were allowed to, even if they could stone the guilty parties, in Deuteronomy 17 in the law, it says this, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person should not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And then it says in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 17, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. Side note here. The idea of stoning, often the first stone hurled, if it was hurled accurately, would do the job. Or at least knock the person unconscious. And then everybody else was heaping stones on top more as an an explanation or a show of the dangers of that sin. And it was a terrible thing. For anybody to get a kick out of that, you would have to be really self-righteous to have some sort of an enjoyment of the idea or the prospect of anyone going through that kind of execution. And so this is how the Pharisees and the scribes paint themselves today in this passage. And who was to throw the first stone? The very eyewitness who caught them in the act. 
Meaning this. If the scribes and Pharisees had done everything according to the law, there would have been a woman and a man. They would have either brought the eyewitnesses or have been the eyewitnesses themselves. And only if they were the eyewitnesses would they have the right to cast the first stone. So when Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, he was referring them to the law. To Deuteronomy 17, which the Pharisees were violating right there and then. They were in sin right then. And Jesus called them out for it right then. They were breaking the law in order to try to get Jesus to break the law. And they failed miserably. Verse 9. When they heard it, when the scribes and Pharisees heard Jesus' response, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. I guess the younger saw there wasn't any fight left in the elders, and so they left with him. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Notice the crowd who had been listening to Jesus beforehand teaching has either left at this scene or at least stood their distance. They're scared of the Pharisees, right? And so Jesus is left here alone with this woman. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? That's judgment. Executing the judgment on the sin. Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Go and sin no more. So what has Jesus just done here? Did he just excuse her adultery? Has Jesus just said, "Eh, it's okay, I'll overlook that one. Just make sure it doesn't happen again, okay? I'm not going to condemn you, so it really doesn't matter that you did this. Is that what's happening It can't be that. We know that all sin must be judged. God is holy and righteous. He's just. But what else did Jesus say about condemnation? This is not the only time he spoke of it. Uh, Maybe that'll help us to understand what's going on here. Again, back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 17. Jesus said, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why didn't Jesus condemn this woman? Why didn't he execute the wrath of God on her in that moment? Because he was about to give his life for her. He was about to take the wrath of God for her sin on himself. All sin must be judged. Every person will either suffer the eternal consequences for their own sin or every bit of the wrath of God that we deserve will have been paid through the the precious blood of Jesus Christ. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is grace. Grace. Unmerited favor. If you have put your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in your place for your salvation, God has freely given you, gifted you with Christ's righteousness. You have it. You're not guilty. 
your innocence in the blood of Jesus Christ. So go and sin no more. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that what Jesus just said the opposite of to this woman? No. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We died when Christ died, church. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If Jesus was the Lord of that woman at that moment and from then on, as she said... She had died to that sin. And now she was going to live in freedom. Go and sin no more. So then what is my motivation for righteousness? Why should I strive for that? Why should that woman have gotten up that day, dusted herself off, and then never be the same? Fear of stoning? No. Fear of legalistic scribes and Pharisees? No. Fear of not getting what I want from people or experiencing some kind of bad karma? No! Fear of God zapping her out of anger? No. No. That doesn't motivate you to do anything good. And anything good you might do would be for all the wrong reasons. It just makes you not want to get caught doing anything bad. But Christ came to stand in your place. He took the punishment for your sin. And when you become a true follower of Jesus Christ, a child of God, righteousness is established in your life. And it flows out of your heart like flowing streams of waters. And you love sacrificing yourself for the benefit of others. You love because he first loved you when we were quite unlovable. Amen? And that love is your motivation. That's your motivation. Not our selfish, fleshly, sinful nature. Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You know why you don't have to fulfill the law? Because Christ already did it for you. It's done. It's done. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, that's done, but according to the Spirit. So let's walk according to the Spirit. Go, church, and sin no more. We have every confidence and assurance that we are in possession of the preserved written word of God. So treasure it. Read it. Listen to it. Devour it. 
We saw today that whether you choose to deny the authenticity of the Bible as a whole, or even if you choose to be religious but do it your own way, or for your own purposes, as the scribes and Pharisees did, instead of submitting to God's provision of righteousness through Jesus Christ, you will at some point have to abuse or misinterpret the Scriptures. But the truth will set you free. Abusing the Scripture or rejecting it is not freedom. Rejecting the Scripture is not freedom. It's bondage. That is condemnation. Whoever does not believe, what did Jesus say? Is condemned already. But in Christ, you are freed. In his grace, resting in his righteousness, you are called and equipped to go and pursue the righteousness that has already been given to you. So go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you that Christ provided to us our righteous record. That Christ took upon himself our sinful record. And that by his death, burial, resurrection, we're free. God, help us. May we rest in your love. Rejoice in your love. Exalt Christ. And may we love because you first loved us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.